Hello, and welcome to The Scott Mize Show, a podcast focused on health, diet, bodybuilding, and philosophy. I interview experts, doctors, coaches, and N equals one case studies to answer your questions about improving health, achieving your best physique, and making sustainable progress. We'll cover topics from carnivore and ketogenic diets, to bodybuilding, to life philosophy, and everything in between. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by LMNT Electrolytes. This month, we're switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP LMNT partners, including CarnivoreCast listeners. You can now receive this free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link, which is provided in the show notes or my Instagram link in bio. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash CarnivoreCast, all one word. And as I said, I'll include the link in the show notes. LMNT electrolytes are convenient evidence-based and delicious and get yours today to help support the show. Thank you. Angela Parsons has had some pretty amazing results with my, with her lipidemia on carnivore. In her pursuit of health, Angela discovered her high oxalate diet was adding to her symptoms. Despite her commitment to a whole foods plant-based diet, Angela's health began to decline rapidly. Motivated to find a solution, she transitioned to a carnivore diet, which brought about remarkable changes changes. She runs a website called The Healing Blossom and is dedicated to sharing her journey and raising awareness about lipidemia, EDS, and butyricolin. Help me with this. It's called uh, butyricolinesterase deficiency. Butyricolinesterase. By the end of the podcast, I'll be able to say it. Deficiency. Um, welcome to the show, Angela. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. And um, the lipidema is actually different than lipidemia, which is oh, has to do with lipidema, cholesterol. Yeah. But if I go right. to a doctor's office and tell them I have lipidema, they think I'm saying lipidemia or lymphedema. So I always have to clarify, not lymphedema, not lipidemia, but lipidema or lipidemia. Yeah. Say. That's a great point. I was thinking, <laughs> lipidema, but yeah, I, I mispronounced it. Thank you. Um, so welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Um, yeah. I'm Super excited to be here. So I'm um, thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. And um would love to start by, you know, hearing your story. How'd you get to where you are today? Um, and, and what brought you to this point in, in your health journey? Sure. And I want to thank your listeners for tuning in because even if my health journey doesn't apply to you, you you know someone that it does. And um, I'm going to explain all of it and tell you why. And so if it doesn't help you, you're going to help someone else by knowing this information. So That's a great point. Yes. So yeah, my story uh, starts out um, probably around age 10. Um, looking at photos, you can see I have fuller hips and thighs than my peers. And I, I've put that photo on my blog. It's very slight. But that's where the lipidema started. And I know I had fullness there for a while. I just don't have any photos and I don't remember exactly when. But my mom used to call me bubble butt. And um, I had step siblings that would call me fat, but I wasn't obese. I wasn't fat, um, pretty skinny, actually, my arms and my upper body. But I just had that disproportion there. And um, then my health took a big nosedive around the time that we had gotten head lice and had multiple um, head lice treatments in a row, at least four, plus the spray all over our couches and carpets and mattresses. And my health just tanked from there. 
like you're supposed to be in optimal health at age 12. And I, I was not, and I was sick and getting bronchitis and, um, I was falling down all the time. Um, I was actually diagnosed with scoliosis, but Mm. the doctor never investigated why. And, um, some of these issues are related to Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is, um, a disorder that's actually thought to be rare, but it's not. Um, there's a lot of people that struggle with it and are just never diagnosed. Um, it's just the more severe cases get diagnosed. And, um, I wasn't severe, but around this time I was definitely struggling. Um, I started struggling in school. I think I had some ADHD issues going on, severe anxiety, selective mutism. I mean, I go through the entire day in junior high school and the only word that would come out of my mouth was, hi, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. just this little meek. And I just, I couldn't hold a conversation. I just, I I just couldn't learn. And I was struggling. And then gym class was being yelled at all the time, you know, stop blocking my legs. And um, I just couldn't run, like everything hurt. And um, and it was a struggle. And I, that was that way kind of on and off all through basically the rest of my life. And I can pinpoint the times when I would be exposed to raid and roundup and these things that would tank my health pretty severely. And to where in my, um, twenties, I was using roundup in the backyard and I developed a lipoma in my arm. And it was very painful. And the doctors kept saying, oh, they're not painful. No, it's painful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I finally had it removed. But also at the time, I was dealing with pretty severe fatigue. And I couldn't even drive myself to work. And, um, you know, I still worked. But I I would have to have a ride. And I'd have to have a ride home. Because the hum of the road would put me to sleep. And I could not stay awake. And so my doctor's like, well, maybe you have an infection. So we'll put you on um, antibiotics. And I was on antibiotics for months and then my gut got destroyed. (laughs) And, um, and then soon after that, I started kind of feeling better. And then my health started getting worse again. So I kind of this up and down and along with these ups and downs, my weight would go up and down, you know, I'd gain 20, 30 pounds and then I'd work really hard to get it off. But I'd go through these phases of severe fatigue and then I'd be okay for a while. And just up and down and no answers at all to my health. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. That was the sound of the NutriSense biosensor. With NutriSense, I've learned some very interesting things about how my food and drink choices affect my body, but also how stress, sleep, and exercise can play a role. Your glucose levels can significantly impact how your body and mind feels and functions throughout the day. NutriSense lets you analyze your glucose levels in real time in response to food, exercise, stress, and sleep. It's been fascinating to see my results and the results of my family members who have also signed up. One of my family members who's pre-diabetic is now clearly able to see when her blood glucose is getting out of control and draw immediate patterns to see how different foods, eating at different times a day, and even sleep quality slash timing and stress directly affect her blood glucose. And she's now able to manage it very well with that information. NutriSense includes one month of free board-certified nutritionist guidance and support where they'll help you interpret the data, promptly answer all your questions, provide suggestions based on your goals, and keep you accountable to your plan. To start decoding your body's messages and pave the way for a healthier life, visit NutriSense.com slash Scott Mize 
that's S-C-O-T-T-M-Y-S, and get $30 off your first month and one month of board-certified nutritionist support. When they ask how you learned about NutriSense, make sure to tell them it was the Scott Mize podcast. That's NutriSense.com slash Scott Mize for $30 off your first month and one month of board-certified nutritionist support. But around 25, the pain got bad. And I would have these flares that would just radiate down my body from head to toe with um, pain in the neck and back. And sometimes it'd be so bad I'd have to leave work because I couldn't, my brain was not functioning, had all this brain fog and never got diagnosed with anything. I went to a clinic with doctors, chiropractors, physical therapists, and they, you know, I would go three days a week and they prescribed me somas, which is a muscle relaxer. And um, things did get better, but, you know, after my insurance stopped paying, you know, the next year it came back. The clinic was closed. I don't know what happened to them. And I, I just went from chiropractor to chiropractor to physical therapy, trying to fix it. And I, it just would never get fixed. And um, I ended up drinking more because that fixed the pain. <laughs> and um, so three days a week or during the week, I go to the chiropractor at weekends, I'd drink the beer because that's how I would get through <laughs> life. <Yeah>. And, <laughs> you know, and then by my late twenties, um, the, everything just seemed to get worse. My health, my brain, everything. And I had so much anxiety and I ended up doing this detox box by Dr. Hyman. And the only thing you eat is nasty brown rice, protein shakes, salmon, and a little bit of brown rice and steamed vegetables. And you do that for a whole month. And it drastically changed how I felt and I felt better, but it wasn't sustainable to me at all. Like it was, I just couldn't wait to be done, but it gave me a lot of energy back that I hadn't felt since I was a kid. And I wanted to understand why. So I bought more of his books in which he promotes the plant-based diet. So, you know, his, I bought cookbooks and everything, and there's nightshades and legumes and, you know, it's gluten-free and, and dairy-free. So I, I had kept out dairy and gluten at that point. And just would eat so many vegetables because I'm like, I'm going to heal my body and feel so good. But I didn't realize that, you know, the terrible feelings, like the fatigue and stuff that eventually came back, I didn't associate that with the healthy foods that I was eating. And so um, I ended up annually doing this detox to kind of give my body a reboot and kind of set back, you know, 20 pounds that I gained through the year. and you know, through this back and forth. And I, I read so many books on nutrition. I watched all those documentaries about plant-based diets and I, and I just wanted it to heal me. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, with sticking to that detox diet, I could gain energy back and be working out. And I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to train for triathlons. I'm going to, my, my husband um, or my boyfriend at the time. Um, he was a cyclist and he'd do hundred mile bike rides and he inspired me to really get fit. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. So I got all the gear and I would train and train and train. And I would come in last place <laughs> every time, but I just kept doing it. And, but it just got so painful. And 
um, I just, I didn't understand. And I would go to the doctor and complain about not being able to lose weight. And it's just eat less calories, exercise more. And I was doing all the exercise. I don't even think I was eating enough calories. Mm. And, um, yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's, it's frustrating (laughs) because what I know now is that just was not the optimal diet for, for my body, but it took going, um, I went through IVF treatments to, to get pregnant. And so I had my first baby at 40, but during this time I experienced massive swelling, but I, I thought it was all fat. Like, you know, that one night we went for ice cream just blew me up. (laughs) And, um, I thought that it was my fault that I was getting bigger and I didn't understand, like I couldn't zip up my boots. I couldn't, um, you know, none of my clothes fit. And, And this was happening before I got pregnant, just from the IVF drugs. And, um, I just kept blaming myself. And, you know, I I saw, I've seen personal trainers over the years. I've seen dietitians and nutritionists and everything was always my fault. Like I wasn't logging my calories or I wasn't logging my food. And I, you know, was just eating more than what I was logging, or I just, you know, wasn't pushing myself hard enough. But every time I pushed myself hard, I'd, I'd be in pain and injure myself. And so when I was postpartum, I was in so much pain. Like my arms ached, like when you get the flu and, um, I had pretty severe brain fog and I I just couldn't remember a lot of things. And, um, the joint pain was bad. I couldn't open the baby bottles. I couldn't, um, unbuckle car seats. Like it was so bad. And I went to my doctor and I'm like, I'm in so much pain and I have so much fatigue and I I, want to know what's wrong. And she's like, well, you know, you're nursing. So it's postpartum hormones. And, um, you know, let's, she ended up diagnosing me with plantar fasciitis in one of my feet and, and then sent me on my way. And, um, you know, it's just incredibly frustrating. Like this is postpartum. Every woman feels like this postpartum, like, why are we having babies? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so I ended up in in Facebook groups and in a mom group, one of the moms shared photos of herself. And she said, I just got diagnosed with this disorder. And I think some of you have it. And, you know, she showed pictures of her arms and her stomach and her, her legs. And she says, it's called lipedema and um, it causes the fat to be painful and it doesn't go away with diet or exercise. And I'm like, (gasps) this is it. This is what I've been dealing with my whole life. This is, this is it. So I went to my doctor and I said, I found something that explains some of the issues I'm having. And, um, I, you know, I told her about it and she'd never heard of it. And, um, she just kind of blew me off. And so later I went back, I printed out a bunch of stuff, anything I could find that explains it. And I took it back to her again. And I said, this is what I have. And so she agreed that my legs looked like it, but she wasn't sure if my arms were involved or my stomach, um, or if I just had some obesity fat, but also during this time, I developed tons of lipomas like all over. And you can kind of still see some of these in my arms and, um, and they were painful. Yeah. And she's like, no, lipomas aren't painful. Yes, mine are. 
And um, I said, you know, they're burning and they're aching. And she's like, no, lipomas aren't painful. So she just agreed that I had lipedema, but couldn't confirm my stage. If I was um, late stage one or early two, she couldn't determine, you know, the rest of this stuff. So I ended up finding Dr. Karen Herbst online and she's in Tucson, Arizona. And I ended up flying down to see her, but there was a long wait. I, I didn't see her. So this was in 2017, late 17, when I discovered all of this and I saw her in November, 2019. So um, just the time that it took to say, okay, do, can we afford this for me to fly down there and do all this? Do I bring the family? Do I go by myself? All that stuff. So, and then the year long wait added on that. And um, she confirmed that I did have lipedema full leg um, and that it was more prominent in my hips and thigh, thighs, and I, they call it kind of the gynoid area, and that it was in my arms and it was in my stomach. I asked her about my breasts because I used to be C cup and then I went to G wow. <laughs> with the pregnancy. And, um, but back before the IVF drugs, I had actually gone to a D. And then once I got pregnant, it was like double D, D within just a few months. And so just totally out of control <laughs> in the breasts. And I asked her and she says, well, I don't diagnose it in the breasts. I don't inspect breasts, but it can be in your breast." So she confirmed that it can be, but she wouldn't tell me if it was or not. Yeah. And um, then she told me that I likely had, um, or she had me fill out a form and decided that I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but that I needed to see a specialist to diagnose it. So maybe I'll stop and kind of explain what lipedema is yeah. more at this point. And then before I continue on and got my notes, so I don't want to miss anything important about it. Great. But um, so one in nine women have lipedema. Wow. That's and it, they actually think it could be more. Um, some say it's less, but kind of one in nine is is where they're with, where they're at with this right now. Um, it's a loose connective tissue disorder, um, but the lymphatics are involved, and there's not complete agreement. And there might be uh, different cases, of different people, but um, they're thinking that the fibrotic fat is forming, and then lymphatics are getting sluggish because they can't get through that fibrotic fat. And then that's causing the dysfunction in the lymphatic system. But for mm -hmm. me, I didn't have obesity. I was never more than 30 pounds overweight at any time. And I um, believe it was more of a lymphatic impairment and maybe caused by the um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, since that can cause issues with anything in your body. And then um, also I had a tonsillectomy. So back when I was um, about 10 years ago, before I had had kids, I had a tonsillectomy. And that's when I started noticing um, what I thought was fat, but it was swelling in my arms and the swelling in my stomach. And, and then also the lipedema at the time was just in the hips and thighs had now gone into the calf, which is why I wasn't able to zip my boots up anymore. Mm. And that was 10 years ago. And um, I'm pretty sure that that tonsillectomy played a role in this lymphatic dysfunction. Um, genetics are also involved with lipedema, just like they're involved with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, but I don't have anybody in my family that 
has lipedema, it's possible that my grandma that passed away in her fifties, maybe just had it in her thighs, just kind of based on photographs in her swimsuit, but um, she's early, very early stage one and never progressed. And I could never understand why I progressed, why it was spreading through my body. And, um, so it usually will start in puberty, pregnancy, or menopause. So hormones are involved. Um, so a lot of women won't have any signs until pregnancy or menopause. Um, but most of us, it starts with puberty. And of course, if you see my 10-year-old photo on my website, you can see that was before puberty. <laughs> but and, and there are women in the lipedema community that you can see it um, when they're a child a young child, even a baby. I've, I've seen the photos where it looks, you can see the lipedema. Um, so what it does is it causes the body to build fibrotic fat and this fat. And if you can see that there's in my arm, you can see where my watch is kind of stops that. Yeah. And, um, but it's, it's definitely in my arms along with those bigger lipomas. Um, and the bigger lipomas, Dr. Hurst said, was multiple lipomatosis. So that's like in addition to the lipedema, which is not supposed to be painful, but mine are painful. And no. <laughs> so on carnivore, they are not painful though. So that's one of the benefits of carnivore there. Um, so it causes the irregular distribution of fat. So I explained earlier how you could see I was fuller in my hips and thighs. As I became a teenager, I was probably a size six in my upper body and um, I was a size 12. And then when I would, you know, do my 20, 30 pound gain of weight, I'd go into a 14. So most of my adult life, I was between 12 and 14 pants and then six to eight shirts. So it's that disportion. So I couldn't, couldn't really find dresses to fit unless they were nice and stretchy, stretchy in the hips. Um, just because of that disportion. So that's one of the signs is this disportionate fat. And then um, legs can feel heavy. So going up and down the stairs, running, um, the legs are just going to feel heavy. Um, the fat can be faint painful. Not everyone has pain. And sometimes the pain comes in the later stages. But that aching feeling that I had when I was postpartum in my arms, that was the lipedema. Mm -hmm. And um, I've had the aching feeling in my calves, but that didn't come until last year. And, um, and then I've had a burning feeling as well. And then some women have um, like painful when you press on them, like if a cat or a dog or a kid jumps on their lap, it's kind of a jolting, shocking pain. Um, I haven't really experienced that, but um, um, I did have pain to the touch when I had had uh, one of my surgeries that I'll explain too. Um, it can be misdiagnosed, as I mentioned, the obesity or lymphedema, um, but you can also have lipedema with obesity and lymphedema. And so that can make it harder to diagnose. Um, also the earlier stages where it just looks like cellulite can be harder to diagnose. But um, stage one, the fat accumulates in the lower body um, primarily in the hips, thighs, or buttocks, or you may have more just column heavy legs. And um, the accumulation of fat in the lower body becomes more prevalent in stage two, and the areas become you know more nodular and cobblestone-like, and patients experience 
increased sensitivity or discomfort. Then stage three is significant enlargement of the areas and they become more fibrotic and hard and mobility becomes impaired. And um, so there are women that become immobile because they don't know they have this disease. And, you know, they're just being told to eat less and eating less does not help. <laughs> but um, um, so, you know, there's a lot of women out there struggling and there's a lot of women in the early stages that are very frustrated and, you know, blaming themselves for the way their thighs look and doing everything possible to, to try and correct it. And it doesn't, it doesn't correct. So um, some women may start with it in their arms. Um, I've heard of a few people that that's happened to. Um, and then up until very recently, they thought it was progressive. So you start in stage one and as you get older, you progress. But they're saying, no, most women that have it will stay in stage one and will not mm -hmm. progress at all. So it has to have a driver and obesity is a driver. Mm. So, um, and then that lymphatic dysfunction is believed to be one. And then the hormones are also involved as well. So, and it's primarily in women, men can get it, but it's very rare. Mm. And I believe the ones that have been diagnosed with it have some hypermobility, maybe EDS going on as well. Wow. So, um, and then we have, so Is there maybe any other standard treatment for it other than um, like the recommendations you got to just lose weight and eat less? Yeah. So when you have lipedema, it's important to keep the fluid out of your legs and mm -hmm. also to be mobile. And one of the ways that you do that is to wear compression. Yeah. And like yeah, and I, I've seen some early stage one, one women wear compression and do some of these conservative therapies that I'll explain, and their legs look great. So I, I know if I had known about it, then I could have used some of these therapies and maybe not been so frustrated with my <laughs> with my body. Yeah. But um, so the compression, there's medical grade compression, and um, I just get mine on Amazon, but. Um, women who need custom fit, depending on this distortion. And, um, you know, if they can't find sizing to fit with them on Amazon, they have to be specially measured for compression garments. And you pretty much need to be in them 12 hours a day, which kind of sucks with styling clothing <laughs> with this hot compression. Um, and, you know, like for me, I should be wearing it on my arms, but uh, it's very hot. And I have a, I've, been accustomed or gotten accustomed to it in my legs, just not in my arms. Um, but I do uh, also wear like compression athletic leggings um, because I've had such great success on carnivore. These I don't have to be in medical compression all the time, and I can wear like my favorites are the Blanqui hipster compression as they give me the compression that I need. Um, so if you're early stage, that's a, a good way to um, help with that. It also helps with proprioception. So I mentioned um, when I was in junior high and in gym class, I was falling down a lot, especially when we're out running and rolling my ankle. And that has to do with EDS and just that communication from brain to muscle in the body. And um, 
the compression leggings help with that proprioception. So that's got multiple uses. So, you know, hope leggings never got a style because <laughs> they work really well for me. Yeah. Um, there's also manual lymphatic drainage, which you have to see a like a massage therapist that's been certified in MLD. And it's a very, very light massage. Um, mm. And, you know, they do things in a certain way to get that lymphatic fluid flowing. Yeah. Um, there's vibration plates. And this is especially good for women who are not mobile. Um, I did lose my mobility uh, for a couple of years and I would just go sit on my vibration plate to help get that lymphatic fluid pumping because I couldn't walk. And then um, there's also swimming. So just walking around in the pool or doing water aerobics is excellent. The water acts like a natural compression. Um, and, you know, for women who may struggle with their legs, there's swim leggings out there and, um, there's swimsuits that, you know, help us maybe feel more confident in the pool. Um, there's also, you know, diet is a big thing. And there's a lot of debate about what diet works for lipedema. Um, the rad diet is recommended. There's a, there's a book. Um, it was written by my doctor and some other people that recommend the rad diet, but that would not work for me. And um, what is you know, the rad diet? Is it like low salt or something? It's an anti-inflammatory diet. So there's no okay. red meat and, you know, like chicken and fish. And um, I believe now they recommend it be low carb. Um, I don't believe it doesn't have gluten. Um, I don't remember exactly. I just knew it's like, okay, been there, done that. Um, yeah didn't work. <laughs> and, um, I really didn't have any success with diets. I mean, obviously I would go up and down that 20 pounds, but I was working my butt off in the gym to get down. Like, and you know, every time I'd see a nutritionist they're like, Oh, you need to, um, you need to eat nuts to add some protein. And then the next one is, Oh, don't eat nuts. You know, that's too many carbs. <laughs> and, like it's just, this bad information all around and, you know, just eat more fruits and vegetables. I'm like, I'm eating, like I'd buy those Costco size spring mixes and I yeah. go through two of those a week, wow. <laughs> you know, and make my own dressings. And <laughs> just, you know, when we were doing the, the, the cycling, you know, all the women would stop at the feed stations and grab potato chips and Swedish fish and, and, granola bars. And I would stop and open up my Ziploc with my sweet potato slices and then my chia seeds soaked in coconut water for those electrolytes. Like I was trying to be yeah. <laughs> super healthy. Yeah. And, um, then, uh, when I, I think I was, I think it was 2018. Um, my daughter was two, I tried keto and it, it worked for me and it helped me get a lot of that baby weight off but then I just kind of hit this plateau and was having pain and I didn't understand why. And I kind of just settled into a low carb diet because I wasn't progressing. Like I wasn't getting bigger and I just couldn't lose the weight. And, and um, but I know I just enough calories, probably wasn't getting enough fat. And when I went to have our second baby and when we had our second baby, I had known about all this now and I didn't want to pass these genes down. 
So, and plus I had experienced like 10 pound weight gains with every miscarriage that I couldn't get oh. that off. And that's just because of that hormonal changes yeah. up 10 pounds without a diet change. And, um, I didn't want that to keep happening. So we opted to do IVF with a donor egg, and then I'm not passing my genetics down and mm. we still get to grow our family. And I did that. And then I thought, okay, um, I know how to eat better this time. And, you know, even though I thought I was eating healthy the first time, <laughs> I mean, I bought all the pregnancy books and telling me how to eat. Like I, I thought I did great, but it was the nightshades that really got me in that first pregnancy and mm. were the cause of all that pain that I was having postpartum. So I had figured this out and had cut out nightshades and then, oh, I can open baby bottles. I can buckle car seats. Um, I can be a mom. And I felt better and had done keto. And, and I thought, okay, I've got it this time. I can do the pregnancy this time. And I'm not gonna, you know, feel this horrible pain all the time. Yeah. And I'm like, Hey, and I'm going, now that I know I have EDS, I can go to physical therapy and, you know, strengthen everything. So I'm not going to have all the pain that I was having in the first pregnancy. Um, and then I found some interesting stuff about nightshades that I'll also explain, but cutting them out of my diet made the pregnancy absolutely wonderful. But then COVID hit <laughs> and COVID really, you know, change things like as far as the pain. And then I had the DTAP vaccine, which I'd had in my first pregnancy. And when I told my doctor, I had a lot of pain after this DTAP vaccine. She's like, Oh, it's, it's just because it's a geriatric pregnancy mm. and totally dismissed that this pain greatly increased after that vaccine. So when it came time, because they always push you to get the vaccine when you're pregnant, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, okay, maybe last time it's because I was eating nightshades and, you know, this time I'm nightshade free, so it's not going to be a problem. And then I did it and exactly eight hours after the injection, I just had that pain, the same thing I get from nightshades in mm -hmm. my neck and back and I got a headache. And then when I would get up to walk, my uterus would spasm. And so they were worried about me triggering labor. So I was told I had to be off of my feet the rest of the pregnancy. Oh, <laughs> it's terrible. And, yeah. Yeah. So I went from walking and swimming and, you know, being active to like not being able to do anything. And, um, and I had my baby and I felt pretty good after I had her. And two weeks after that, I had severe pain in my hips. Like I couldn't walk at all. And, um, I went back to physical therapy and we started doing the exercises and my physical therapist, after like four months, she's like, you know what, you know, I saw you improving in the beginning, but you're really not improving now. And so I think you should go back to your doctor and ask for imaging. So I went back to my doctor. I said, I'm in a lot of pain in my hips. I can't walk. Like I can, you know, hobble into the grocery store and hobble around, but I like, I, I can't go for walks anymore and I can't carry my baby around. Can't wear her because mm -hmm. that extra weight was painful to me. And my physical therapist said that I needed to come see you and ask for imaging. And she said, well, maybe you just need to get a new physical therapist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. 
Um, so I went back and I told my physical therapist and I'm like, can you just write her a letter and, and say that I need this imaging? And then in the meantime, I had gone online and Googled and found that if you have EDS, you're at higher risk for labral tears. Mm. And um, if the foot, when you're giving birth, if the foot is pulled out, it can tear. So that could have been what happened, but I don't know why I didn't have pain until two weeks later. So I, I don't know why that is the case. Mm. So I told my physical therapist, I'm like, do you think it could be a labral tear? Because I found this article and she's like, oh no, you weren't in an accident. You, that, you didn't have any trauma. So I'm like, I know, but I have EDS. She's like, no, that's, that's not what it is, but you do need imaging. I'm like, okay. So finally, my doctor orders imaging and I have an MRI and it comes back with complex labral tears, glute tendinosis, osteoarthritis, and very little or no cartilage. Wow. And yeah. So then I had to go to a surgeon <laughs> and he's like, oh yeah, you've got hip dysplasia. So there's another thing that was missed when I was young that yeah. could have been corrected. And, um, now I've got to have a full hip replacement <laughs> and my baby at this time is 11 months old. <laughs> so I, that was a hard thing to, to swallow, but, yeah. um, it's kind of the infertility was a blessing in disguise because this could have happened in my twenties. Yeah. Wow. And, and now I'd be replacing my replacement at this point. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that I had infertility now and um, I'm dealing this with this at this age because um, then in the future, <laughs> so I think you can only have two replacements. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so we did that and my recovery was a lot harder than the average person for a hip replacement. And um, part of that, I think is the EDS and the hip dysplasia. And I also have found, um, I did metal allergy testing and found that I allergic to nickel and cobalt and um, another metal. And so they had to change the way they normally do the replacements because they couldn't mm. use any glues because they all had nickel. Yeah. And um, so it made recovery really hard. Um, but I, and I still, you know, once I started walking, I still had tons of pain and I was going to physical therapy and I wasn't getting better. The replacement hurt. And the side it hadn't been replaced hurt. The doctor had not taken the right side yet because there still was some cartilage. And, um, but I, I mean, I was in pain. So, you know, I had my handicap pass and I, I couldn't go for walks. And, you know, my kids wanted to go to Disneyland. <laughs> so I got through Disneyland on like 1600 milligrams of ibuprofen <laughs> wow. and taking a four hour nap during the middle of the day. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I just couldn't figure it out because it's like, I'm eating these salads. I don't go out to eat because of this nightshade thing. And I'll, I'll explain why. Um, I'm like so strict with my food and I was so frustrated. Like I got to the point where I'm like, I just need to die because my kids need a better mom. My husband needs a better wife. I can't, I just, I just felt like I was this 90 year old lady and, you know, just some, you know, somebody that people can just stop by and say hi every, two, every once in a while, because I can't go out and do anything. So and sorry. yeah. And so then I found toxic superfoods 
and a YouTube video with Sally. And I had these, this long list of symptoms like hypercalcemia, my DHEA was really high. My testosterone is really high. Um, my parathyroid is normal. My, um, um, I'd had gout, I had tennis elbow, you know, all my joints hurt and watching Sally's video. I'm like, that's me. And I had to buy the book and I'm like, okay, I've been poisoning myself for years with oxalates and I'm poisoning my kids too. Mm. And, um, we went, I took, put them on low oxalate. I just took out oxalates and went carnivore. And because when I was eating some of the oxalates, I actually didn't feel good and felt better, just full carnivore. And yes, I had to go through oxalate dumps, but my, I dropped like 15 pounds rapidly. And then the weight's been pretty slow after that, but I'm pretty much left with the lipedema, but even my lipedema areas are changing. And this is, was shocking to me because I, so for example, my favorite pair of jeans like torrid bombshell flares because they fit those curves. I was in an 18 in January. By February, I dropped to a 16. And then May, I was in a 14. Wow. And then um, in September, I went to go try them on. And I'm like, uh, my legs are just too tight and just a little bit too tight in the hips, but they fit in the waist because the 14s are a little too loose in my waist. But I'm like, oh, I'll just go back to the 14. Then I was showing my friend like, look at my legs. They look so much better than they used to look. And then I'm like, wait a second. They even look better than they did a month ago. So (laughs) I run back out to Torrid, put on the 12s. I'm like, oh, they fit perfectly. (laughs) So now I'm in a 12, which is great. And then I'm like, you know, I wonder if my, I could buy some tall boots that would fit again. Cause I haven't been able to wear regular tall boots. I might have to get wide calf or extra wide calf to fit into tall boots. And I ordered a pair and they fit. I was like, wow. And I see, and I was 20 pounds less 10 years ago when those boots wouldn't fit. So that wow. just goes to show that I'm getting this fluid out. Yeah. And one of the other things that I got um, is a pneumatic compression pump, which they usually will, that will, insurance companies will usually pay for it if you have lymphedema, but it's a little bit harder to get one for lipedema. But when I had this replacement, it's been swollen for two years. So I, I have a picture up on my website that shows you can see that swollen side. Mm-hmm. And they finally approved a lymphatic pump this year. But the one they approved is the basic pump and it doesn't cover the hips um, or the stomach or the breasts or anything. And it just is arms and legs. And um, I noticed that it was making the hip worse because it was pumping fluid up and then it's just getting stagnant where that hip replacement is and making that more tight and painful and, and losing some mobility in there. And so they said, well, you really need a flexi touch. This, this is tactile medical explaining that they have a, a lymphatic pump that works a lot differently than other lymphatic pumps. And it kind of goes up in rings up up your leg to help push the lymphatic fluid. It covers the torso. And, um, and that's really what I needed, but my insurance wouldn't pay for it. And so I had to fight that a bit. And it was, I think it was actually showing the picture of my big one hip 
or it's possibly is lymphedema in there. I haven't actually been diagnosed with that, but once they saw that picture, then I was able to get that pump and that's made a big difference as well. And if I'd had a pump like that, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would not have needed to throw away my favorite pair of tall boots. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, the lymphatic pump is a good tool to have if you can get one. Um, rebounding is a great exercise to do as well. Just there's, I like leaps and rebounds. And then there's also Bellicon, which is a lot more expensive, but they're great rebounders to just lightly bounce on. Like you don't have to do the jumping jacks and exercises, although you can if you're mobile, but you're not. It's just that, that uh, light jumping that can help with uh, lipedema to get that lymphatic fluid pumping. And then dry skin brushing has been promoted as helpful. And, um, and then you can also learn to do lymphatic drainage on yourself, which is something that I want to learn and understand. And I've been trying to understand the lymphatic system in general. And I've been learning about neurolymphatics. And because um, Dr. Herbst found that a lot of women with lipedema have fibromyalgia-like pain. Mm. And I haven't been given an answer by any doctor of what a lot of this pain is. Yeah. I know it's triggered by nightshades, but um, this what's what's happening in like fibromyalgia is the lymphatic system is either congested or it's going backwards. So those toxins are going back into the brain yeah. and causing like the brain fog and and um, pain. So I've been learning about that and the Perrin technique. I just got a new book. So I'm, I want to understand that and see if that therapy can help with this pain. Yeah. But um, I have pinpointed the triggers and on carnivore, those triggers are taken away. And as I've mentioned, nightshades, a lot of people know about lectins and oxalates, but a lot of people don't know what the alkaloids do. And I can explain that and explain how that was all affecting me and then other things that can also do this. And this is where I get that pain. Yeah. So I'm assuming everybody knows at this point that tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, eggplant, tomatillos, goji berries are all nightshades. Yeah. But um, they, so they're alkaloids that are in them. They're like a natural pesticide. And they actually require the same enzymes to detoxify as chemical pesticides and herbicides. So what happens is these things are called cholinesterase inhibitors. So they decrease the activity of these enzymes. So the more you're exposed to them, the lower the activity goes, right? And as I mentioned in the past, I'd always have this like spiral of health conditions that would occur after these exposures to different pesticides. And, um, but also eating a plant-based diet full of nightshades. I mean, I grew my tomatoes and my peppers and I supported community and the local community agriculture program, and they would deliver potatoes and tomatoes and spinach and all these things to my doorstep every week. And um, I had no idea that these superfoods were poisoning me. Yeah. And there's a little, there's a difference between what the oxalates are doing and what alkaloids are doing. But I found the people that have this sensitivity to alkaloids, a lot of them are also having a sensitivity to oxalates, but I can 
kind of show like what some of the differences I found in my own body between the, between the two. So these enzymes, so for, so for example, it's really hard to pinpoint nightshades because one, there's so many of them. They're in all processed foods mm. and they, um, may not, they may have different levels of alkaloid content. So you can eat a tomato one day and maybe not have any kind of reaction. And then you may react the next day. Um, so nightshades with green on them. So potatoes that get green or, or where they sprout, um, and then tomatoes that are green, green peppers versus a red pepper, those things are going to have a higher alkaloid content and people have died from eating potatoes with green on them. Wow. So it's not something that can be cooked out. And, um, you know, if you have potatoes with green, you're, you, you got to check it. You don't use it at all. Not, you can't just cut that green part or cut that sprout off. You should not be eating them. Hmm. And so you can see how in the modern diet, everybody's eating, you know, hash browns for breakfast, French fries for lunch. And then you put your salsa on your eggs and your ketchup on your fries and, and, you know, and then dinner, you know, your eggplant, Parmesan or whatever, like we're just overloading ourselves with nightshades yeah. and nobody realizes what these things are actually doing in our body. And based on the study on nightshades, they're saying, well, unless it has high alkaloid content, like the green potato, then it's not going to affect you. But I found that it does. And I found several reasons why they would affect you. And um, one of them is, is a genetic variant. So let's see. Well, before I go into the gen genetic variant, um, I can kind of explain also that potatoes and tomatoes and peppers are usually part of the dirty dozen. So they also may have like pesticide residues as well. They'll also spray potatoes with a growth inhibitor to keep them from sprouting, especially the potatoes that they use to make potato starch. Mm -hmm. And potato starch is the most painful out of all the nightshades to me. Like, and a lot of people in my group react very poorly to potato starch. Whereas in the low oxalate group, and they have a spreadsheet of oxalate contents of all these foods. Potato starch is low oxalate. So if you're reacting to nightshades, but you don't react to potato starch, then it could be oxalates that you're reacting to, right? But if you are reacting to potato starch, then I believe it's these alkaloids or the pesticide chemicals that, you know, or herbicide chemicals that could be in the potato starch because it's to me, like pesticide poisoning, really painful. Like I can touch, uh, touch something that's been sprayed with pesticide and I will be in extreme pain from head to toe. Whereas if I eat, um, you know, some salsa, uh, it's mm, maybe a little bit of pain, but it's not bad. Like, so, and then you've got potato starch where it's mm, closer to the pesticide feeling. So, or herbicide feeling. So, that's the only thing I can think think of is that they're spraying these potatoes and I don't, there's no study that shows, yes, the alkaloid content continues to increase or is these, all these chemicals <laughs> that are used, used for these potatoes that they're growing and then used in potato starch. So, or to make potato starch. And this also goes with like modified food starch. They also put modified food starch in food coloring. So anything that's, you know, colored, 
Um, so when I bake my kids cakes and they want some colored character cake, um, if I even touch the food coloring, it will trigger that reaction. So um, I have to look at natural ways, but I can't use natural food coloring either. Like you would get at Whole Foods or natural grocers because those also have nightshades. <laughs> They're also putting potato in those. And, or they can even use nightshades in cup for coloring, like herbal teas. They may use paprika to make it peachy colored, or, mm -hmm. um, there's also sodas they'll put paprika in. So paprika is used for coloring and a lot of different things. And, um, and, and yes, I do react to paprika. The level reaction kind of changes. I never know if it's going to be really mild or if it's going to be a little bit stronger. Either way, I don't like it. And so I just avoid those foods and that's, one of the reasons why I haven't eaten out in, in several years, except for a few places that make me safe food that yeah. I can eat. But, um, so another way of contamination from these, um, nightshades that I just found a study that was done, um, recently, it just came out this year. And in Uganda, there were 300 people that were hospitalized and 50 people died because of a cereal. And that cereal is made of corn and soy. But what happened was the fields where this corn and soy was grown had nightshade weeds because there's a lot of nightshade plants out there, thousands. And these fields had these nightshades in them. They harvested the corn and soy to make the cereal and the nightshade weeds are in that. And they made the cereal, people ate it, and people died because of that alkaloid content. Mm. So they're called uh, tropane alkaloids. And so they did a study um, looking at uh, baked goods and, you know, cereals. And they uh, tested in eight different countries. And I think they found tropane alkaloids in 69% of cereal and baked goods. And, um, and then also they found it in teas spices, um, even uh, chocolate, and um, so many different things. Anything that's processed can get these nightshade alkaloids, especially if it's organic. <laughs> so, you know, if you're not eating organic, you're getting the pesticides and herbicide residue. <laughs> and then if you are eating organic, you're just getting the natural pesticide, you know, herbicide residue from those, from those nightshade uh, tropane alkaloids. So there's another reason why I feel so much better on the carnivore diet. Not that I was a big processed food eater, but I was when I was young. And um, so that that's really interesting to find that and kind of shocking because sometimes I do get that reaction and I'm not quite sure what's causing it because I didn't feel that I had eaten anything that had had nightshades. But you know, we also have issues, um, those of us that have this, with eating anything that says natural flavors because they can use nightshades as a natural flavor. And then, of course, dextrose and maltodextrin, those, those food additives that are in a lot of things, um, they can come from potato or corn or both. So um, kind of pinpointing it when you've eaten something that you haven't prepared for, for your, you know, yourself from scratch, it's kind of hard to figure out. And, um, and then let's see, they also, I also, so I wanted to make a cute little Barbie cake for my daughter 
um, for her birthday, she wanted it to be pink. And I found that freeze-dried fruits can be used to make kind of the coloring and and frosting. And dragon fruit makes a perfect Barbie pink. (laughs) We we tried it, but I didn't know that dragon fruit has those alkaloids too. (laughs) So it's like... uh, forget it's like i need Can't to get away from it <laughs> yeah it's like i need to google before i eat anything for the first time and make sure it's not going to trigger that so um then let's see so the genetic variant and i want to explain that because before i started ivf i was told that um, when we did our genetic testing to make sure we wouldn't pass down any diseases the only thing it came back positive for is pseudocholine esterase deficiency. And what they said was, it's not an issue. It doesn't affect you unless you have certain types of anesthesia. So if you have surgery, just let the anesthesiologist know that you have this and they know what to do. Hmm. So at that time I was like, oh, okay. And I Googled it and that's all I could find on it. Just page after page after page of this issue with anesthesia. Um, but I found in the, one of the lipedema groups, one of the women had uploaded her ancestry DNA to um, Prometheus, a site where you can just yeah. upload your genetic data. And the first thing that came up was atypical Bucci. And I'm like, I've never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. And when I clicked to find more information and it took me, took me into Snippedia, it talks about the, the anesthesia piece. But it also said that it causes a problem with the nightshade alkaloids and pesticides and herbicides and sarin gas. And I'm like, nightshades, that's it. (laughs) That's why I'm getting so sick from nightshades. Yeah. So, yeah. So Bucci is a kind of another name instead of saying the butricolin esterase, because I know it took me a long time to be able to remember what it was called, because I would go to the doctor and I'm like, I couldn't even remember. Um, they did call it, it was originally called the pseudocholinesterase because pseudocholine, meaning that they thought that this enzyme didn't do anything. Mm. Um, and then people were dying in surgery and then they needed to figure out why. And that's where this piece with anesthesia is well studied. The rest of this stuff isn't studied, but stuff I had to figure out and also had started a group on Facebook to find other people with this genetic variant or find people that had had figured out a sensitivity to nightshades, which I think is the most difficult sensitivity to figure out. Um, but let's see. So the anesthesia has to do with choline esters. So not all anesthesias, just, just specific ones. And I actually have somebody in my group that said they had surgery and woke up in the morgue, which is frightening. Yeah. <laughs> Because they're supposed to know, right? They're supposed to know about this. And even if you don't know you have the genetic variant for it and you just go in and have surgery, they are supposed to know the signs of somebody that has this. And they're supposed to put you on breathing treatments to keep you alive while your body processes that anesthesia. Yeah. And she ended up in the morgue. That's crazy. I I couldn't even imagine that happening. Yeah. So it's a big thing. so Bucci, it's a scavenger, okay? It's, it's an enzyme, not, not a digestive enzyme. 
It's an enzyme produced in the liver and it's coded by that BCHE gene. So just we just call it Bucci. And um, it what it does is it protects the brains from the toxins. So mm-hmm. the alkaloids and nightshades, the pesticides and herbicides. And that's one of the roles that it has. And um, and they've they've known that, but they've never done a study on nightshades and butricolin esterase. I wish they would. Um, but in the group, I also found that not everybody who's reacting to nightshades has this gene variant. And I found that you can have an acquired butricolin esterase deficiency. Mm. So there are a lot of different things that can cause it. And um, I found protein malnutrition, uh, pregnancy hormones, and birth control, liver disease, kidney disease. Uh, there's a lot of different drugs. Uh, certain cancers, severe burns, too many alkaloids, and inflammation can all decrease the activity of this enzyme. So what's happening when this enzyme's too low, okay, it protects acetylcholinesterase. And acetylcholinesterase breaks down the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. So when those enzymes are too low, acetylcholine is going to build up, okay? And this buildup can also cause some of the other neurotransmitters to get out of balance. And um, you're going to have the number one symptom in our group is anxiety. So not everybody gets the pain like I do, but anxiety is is common among all of us. Hmm. And the next thing is probably poor sleep or insomnia, which is pretty common. And then you can also have like muscle spasms and muscle tightness. So when I get nightshades, the pain, just my neck tenses up, oh, this, all this hurts. And I get the spasms in my back. And then if you remember when I had the DTaP vaccine, I was getting those spasms in my uterus. And, um, and then there's an increase of pain. So if I have plantar fasciitis, then when I get that flare of this pain from, from these things, then all the pain is amplified. Yeah. So where the plantar fasciitis was mild and wasn't bothering me, now it hurts. Okay. And everything hurts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, um, so some people in my group have autoimmune diseases as well, and they're experiencing a lot of this kind of stuff. And then um, so what the cholinesterase inhibitors are doing then is they're blocking that proper communication between brain and muscle. And um, so Bucci, so they've been doing some studies on it now, on butyrocholinesterase. And what they found is these studies in mice is um, so they have Bucci knockout, knockout mice. And when they don't have any butyrocholinesterase, they become obese on the same diet as the other mice. And what they found was that Bucci actually breaks down ghrelin. So if your Bucci's too low, acetylcholine's going too high and ghrelin's going too high. And one of the things that when I was plant-based, I was super hungry all the time. And I could, I know I had ADHD that was undiagnosed, but I could not focus on my work for nothing. So Mm. I would buy Vega protein powder, chocolate flavored and and I had a shaker cup in my desk and I'd get some cold water and shake it up. And I'd, so I'd sit and 
drink this like all day long to keep mm. my brain, to help my brain focus. Yeah. I was making it worse because pea protein is also a cholinesterase inhibitor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just adding to it, making it worse. But oh. Um, but that made sense to me about the gorillas. I'm like, oh, that's why I feel hungry all the time. And then they've also done some studies on rats where they injected them with ghrelin and fed them the exact same amount of food. So we know ghrelin makes you overeat, yeah. but they fed them the same amount of food and those rats became obese. Wow. With the high ghrelin. Wow. So these are things that nobody's really talking about. But yeah. I think are super important. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So, so we've got the ghrelin and, um, and they also found that, that lipids are involved. Um, butyrocholinesterase is involved with lipids and they, so they know that obesity can be involved, but I also know that anorexia can also decrease the butyrocholinesterase enzyme. So there's currently studies going on trying to figure this out. Like something's malfunctioning because, um, you know, I'm at risk for Alzheimer's because of this genetic variant. But the drug that they give Alzheimer's patients is a cholinesterase inhibitor. So with this genetic variant, if I had Alzheimer's, I couldn't take those drugs because they would make me worse. But in some people they're helping. So they don't know <laughs> exactly why this is, other than I've seen that these toxins that are going back up into the brain from the lymphatic system, um, they, these doctors that are investigating Alzheimer's, um, they think that's what's causing it. Right. And I'd have to say with how I felt like my entire life, having issues with, with learning, like starting in probably junior high, I think I did okay in elementary, but once I got to that point where I'm having that, um, cascade of, of all these symptoms happening, I couldn't focus on my work. Like I couldn't do the work. I wasn't understanding it. I wasn't retaining it. And I absolutely hated school, hated it with a passion. And I, I got through and I, I graduated, you know, all those D's in gym class <laughs> still got through, but um, I didn't go to college because I was afraid of spending that money and that time and not being able to retain the information. Mm. And I just went right into the corporate world and, you know, just made a place there. But I stayed in the same job for a long time because I was afraid to try and find something else and not be able to do it. Like I just had all this fear of not being able to remember things. And when I cut out nightshades, I like my brain came back a little. But then once I cut out oxalate, it just it all came back. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I feel like myself again, because when I was looking at those studies on butyrocholinesterase before, like it just wasn't figuring it out and wasn't retaining any of it. And now I can read it and go, ah, <laughs> I get it. I understand it. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, I know there's so many people out there that are struggling like me. I mean, I can't look at all those. There's some of the studies. I'm like, well, that's just a lot of stuff I don't know. But, um, but now I, I just... I can retain information. I can learn. Yeah, I, I just, clearly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just made a huge difference in my life. And even in my kids, like I mentioned, I was poisoning my kids with oxalates and my daughter had four skin conditions and her favorite foods were spinach, hummus, 
almond butter, um, sweet potatoes, uh, you know, chia pudding. And then we did these, you know, smoothies and stuff. Like I was literally like poisoning her with oxalates. Mm. And once we took all that out, it took six weeks for her skin to heal. And this is at the point where they were prescribing, wanting to prescribe her steroids to see if they could get it wow. to, to be fixed. And it was oxalates. And so Crazy. I took a picture showing the differences. I didn't have a before. I just had a after one month when I'm like, wow, it's looking better. Let's take a picture. And then yeah. two weeks later when it was completely gone. Wow. So, so, and, and that was my daughter that, that has my genetics. So, um, you know, I feel bad that I did that, but all of my kids' behaviors improved, um, getting oxalates out yeah. and she has the selective mutism and, and has issues with, being able to talk, you know, some anxiety and stuff. And now when I talk to her first grade teacher, she's like, oh yeah, she raises her hand in class. And I always oh. call on her because she, she knows the, you know, answers and, Amazing. and like, she's doing so great with her friends. And I'm like, whoa, I can't believe <laughs> I thought I was like, I wasn't giving my kids these processed foods all the time, you know, feeding them tons of sugar, yeah. but oh my God, I was poisoning them with oxalates. Ah. They're, they're very lucky to have you. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> thanks. So yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm super excited that I found carnivore. It did take me, I mean, it took me a while to wrap my head around keto. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> having a family member, an aunt that did it and she dropped a bunch of weight and I'm like, but it, it can't be, that's not, that's not healthy. Yeah. <laughs> ah, but you know, it, it all planted a seed and even friends yeah. doing paleo diet planted a seed. And I, you know, I've tried all these different things, but my healing did not begin until I cut those nuts and veggies out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's those keto foods. Like I'm, yeah. and I wasn't the only, I guess, processed keto foods that I was eating was maybe almond flour tortillas or, you know, making the keto cakes for my kids' birthdays, Yeah, <laughs> you know, the holidays or whatever, you know, I wasn't doing it all the time, but I was making smoothies with almond butter and yeah. almond milk <laughs> and just, yeah, just poisoning myself just to the point where I felt like I was 90 years old and it was horrible yeah. and didn't want to live, you know? Yeah. And now it's like, oh yeah, I want to live and I can walk my kids to school, which I'm super happy about. Amazing. Disneyland might be a little bit of a challenge with these hips, but my, I haven't had to get this other hip replaced because it's doing so much better. Wow. And then, um, you know, and I go to physical therapy every week to work on that. Yeah. And then with the scoliosis, which plays a role in this issue with the lymphatic fluid backing up, um, you know, I've been going to physical therapy to kind of help correct that. So my posture is so much better than it was. And um, yeah, I'm amazed. I I've lost 25 pounds and I'm, just losing like a pound a month now, but like every day I'm like, oh, this is fitting looser. Like last night I'm like, oh, my underwear's falling off. I need new underwear. (laughs) Like, like it, and it's just amazing. And I, I wish people weren't so afraid of carnivore because we've just been so brainwashed. I mean, we were told not to eat fat and we know now that that was so wrong. And for me as a young teenager, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've got these this bigger hips and thighs. I need to stop eating fat. And then I ate lots of sugar because all of the healthy foods had lots of sugar and no fat. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, it it would destroy my body. All of it did. Yeah. And this is wow. the way, like, I have to be thankful that 
even though it didn't eat the best when I was a kid and my mom tried to feed me lots of nightshades, which I actually rejected. I'm glad she fed me red meat yeah. <laughs> a few days a week, you know, yeah. Yeah. just thankful for that. And my dad taking me to McDonald's, at least there was hamburger meat <laughs> <laughs> back then when yeah. I was eating it. So, but yeah, now I'm like my daughter, she wouldn't eat red meat. And so when we started this, I bought ribeye. She had one bite of the ribeye and she's like, oh, I like this. <laughs> and, and now she'll eat ground beef. Um, you know, she doesn't like it as much as the steak, but she'll eat it now because she's had the ribeye. Mm-hmm. And before, I think, I don't know what it was. If it was a texture thing with her, with, with things we had going on. But um, but yeah, I, I have to cut a hamburger patty up into strips and we call them steak fries. <laughs> <laughs> and But she doesn't use ketchup or anything. She'll just eat the the meat and and it's amazing to see that that change in our in our kids that we can make and in halloween i let them pick like five of their favorite pieces and um encourage them not to get the really you know red sugary stuff (laughs) got them to eat the more higher oxalate chocolate stuff but i think i kind of feel a little bit better about that than the the sugary dyed stuff but we just put it all back in the bowl and handed it back out and we do the switch, witch, and so they get a toy and I actually didn't even have to buy Halloween candy because we had all the candy from Valentine's Easter parades. And I just put it all in a Ziploc bag and any, unless it was chocolate, I, I didn't, cause you know, chocolate can go bad, but the rest of that stuff doesn't go bad. Yeah. So I had a big old bin full of candy that my kids could have eaten had I let them. But looking at it, I'm like, wow, I saved my kids from eating all of this stuff. Yeah. And when when they bring home these candies or go to the parades, like, I'm like, oh, here's $5. Give me your candy. (laughs) (laughs) Now you can go over to the craft fair and buy something. And then they get excited about that or they get excited about a new doll and a new book instead of instead of eating all that candy every day. So that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So well, there's just so many things we can do. <laughs> yeah. Well, your your story is incredible, Angela. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, your resilience through it all is absolutely remarkable. And your relentless pursuit of knowledge yourself is is really incredible. Like no one would ever tell that you had trouble in school because you're so knowledgeable and articulate. Um, and now it's amazing that you're passing it on to others and passing it on to your children and you're so full of life. It's it's really incredible. I'm, I'm speechless. Um, so thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing. Um, and c- where can folks find you if they want to connect with you or follow along? Where's the best place to reach out? Yeah. So I've written my stories. Um, my website I put up this summer, so it's, you know, still work in progress. I'm writing as much as I can while I have to take care of a toddler during the day. So um, I've written all of my lipedema story. And so a lot of this is in there. I've written a lot about the nightshades and butricol and esterase and those, the studies that are coming out. I've got like five more articles that I'm writing, trying to, <laughs> trying to write right now. So I'm posting that all on the, the healing blossom. So you have to put the, the and healing blossom.com. And then whenever I complete an article, um, I've got it on Facebook. And unfortunately, the healing blossom was already taken when I did that. But so I had to add an S at the end. So it's the healing blossoms. And that's where I post all my new articles. If you have any issues with nightshades or, you know, these cholinesterase inhibitors, I have a Facebook group. Um, The the group is made up of people with the allergies and um, also those of us with the 
with the genetic variant and then those that don't have either one but are sensitive. So, you know, a wide variety of people from all over the world. And that's called nightshade-free and cholinesterase inhibitor sensitivity group. So um, if you look for nightshades, there's not, and there might be more than there was when I set up this group, but um, there's a lot of information in there about this and any new studies that we find, we post them in there and and have these uh, discussions if need be. And um, it's been a great resource for me because other than eating nightshades and avoiding pesticides and herbicides, I didn't really know what else to do. But um, like I found that high dose vitamin C actually helped that reaction, just causes the oxalate issue if you keep doing it all the time. But if I'm in a flare, like that helps take my pain level down. Um, just finding out that we could um, get like this, the pesticides and herbicides can be in our air. I live between two farms. And I can go outside and I'll be working outside in the yard and, or just hanging out with my family and I'll get, start to get the pain in my hand and the pain in my neck and start to feel it. Wow. I'll go past the farms and they're spraying in the fields. Oh. And so I just feel like I'm a canary in the coal mine. Yeah. <laughs> I have these super nightshade and pesticide and herbicide spidey senses, but that doesn't mean that everyone else is not being exposed. Yeah. And like my little daughter, we both touched the hose and my youngest one that doesn't have my genetics and my husband all touched that hose. I ended up having severe pain that whole night in insomnia. They both had insomnia, but that was it. So most people would not associate them touching a hose with, you know, herbicide or pesticide and then getting insomnia at night and that being the reaction. Most people wouldn't realize that. But me, yeah. canary in the coal, coal mine, just listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's where they can find me and find all of this information and cool. and um and anything i find I, I try to share and then i try to elaborate and post these articles so <laughs> excellent yeah well i'll have links to all of that in the show notes and thank you again for coming on angela really appreciate it appreciate being so open and transparent and sharing with all of us um and hope you have a wonderful rest of your day oh thank you thank you so much Thank you for listening to the show. You can find The Scott Mai Show on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Please leave a comment, like, review, or share the podcast with your friends or followers. It helps more people find the show.